the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. All right, you guys, welcome back to Some Sanity with Morgan Zeggers. We're going to get right into it because news is breaking. I'm, I just turned the microphone on so I can freaking talk about this and get it out as this story is being announced. Biden just announced a vaccine mandate for companies with more than 100 employees, and this move could affect as many as 100 million Americans. I want you to first put yourself in the shoes you were in in March 2020. What were you doing in March 2020? I'm kind of a psycho and like a prepper in many ways. And so when March 2020 happened for me, and because I love history and I'm so aware of everything that's happened throughout the 20th century as the left rises to power, I immediately felt this sinking feeling in my gut because I knew that this, this moment of both literal, because it, it is a real existing virus, it is a pandemic, and manufactured because so much of this fear has been manufactured, crisis. It was going to lead to massive amounts of power being put into the hands of radical politicians that don't deserve it. Um, when we look at history, I, I'll just start with a quick story, I guess, of Vladimir Lenin. There was a famine in about 1891 in Russia, and Vladimir Lenin was a young man. He's from a very well-to-do family. He was like a Bernie Sanders, you know what I mean? So he's a Bernie Sanders type, where Bernie Sanders has three homes, he's a multimillionaire, and he, he goes on stage and he rails against multimillionaires and people that own multiple properties and all the stuff that he pretty much embodies. And so it's pretty hypocritical. Uh, but he really, Bernie Sanders wants to be known as like a hero of the working class, a man of the people. You know what I mean? Uh, Vladimir Lenin was pretty much the same. He also was from a pretty well-to-do family. He also had a lot of money and resources compared to the rest of the people in his time. And when the famine hit in 1891, he did not help. Do you want to know why he didn't help? It's because he was a student of Marxism. He was a student of radical leftism, and he had plans to enact those crazy leftist radical ideas like communism in the country of Russia. He had plans to do so, and he was later documented. I watched this really cool documentary. I wonder if I could find it because it'd be cool to, to let you guys know about, and maybe we could react to it together. But there was a documentary where sources were talking about how it's proven Vladimir Lenin had spoken about this moment. And he said, yeah, I mean, people were dying because numbers show millions of people probably died in this famine, but numbers back then are pretty sketchy. So you can't really trust what you see. And it wasn't exactly documented. So either way, he says like, yeah, people were dying in my community and starving. And I just, uh, I don't know. I didn't really want to help anybody. And I specifically decided not to, because I knew that for them to want to embrace my radical plans for the future, my, my massive changes that I wanted to bring, they'd have to be pretty scared. And he specifically says, I needed them to feel desperate. I needed them to feel unsure and insecure of what was waiting for them in the future so that it would put them in a mindset 
of being willing to embrace things that they usually wouldn't accept. And so what happens when people are scared and unsure of what's coming and, and they don't exactly feel safe about what the future holds, they strive for a sense of normalcy, a sense of security, no matter how crazy the ideas are of what would be necessary to provide them that sense of security. And so radical ideas become normalized in times of crisis. And uh, what do you know? Vladimir Lenin knew it, and look at us now. And so before, when I used to give speeches before COVID-19 and the pandemic on college campuses and at political conferences and stuff, I would usually talk about the three tactics of the rise of the radical left throughout history. Usually they start distorting language, um, removing cultural aspects of society, and they do this all to control the narrative and control the population. So they change the meanings of basic words. They eliminate parts of history. They rewrite parts of history. And what do you know? They start to craft their own narrative about what happened and what's going to happen in the country. So that's one thing. The next of course, is Marxism. And so you divide the population, basically the haves versus the have-nots, the property owners versus the non-property owners, the renters, the, the workers. You have the workers versus the owners. And today in America, we don't only have financial, you know, economic uh, class warfare style Marxism, which is the classic version. You have cultural Marxism, which is pitting people against each other based on all the weird little identities that the left has created. And so that's why in America we see this, we see the rise of the wokeism. We see the rise of the Marxists that have read Lenin, read Stalin, read Marx. They are super, super interested in this whole concept of making a communist state work. And it's pretty creepy. That's like the, the founders of Black Lives Matter, when they call themselves trained Marxists and say they are well-read and very in touch with their roots and ideology, that means exactly what they are saying. It means they believe that if they continue to try this stuff, they're going to make what was attempted in the 20th century but failed work in America. And let's just be real here. It's never going to work. Okay, so let's put that one down. But they are true Marxists and they are using the wokeism in America and all these identities to split us based on these identities. So we have classic Marxism and cultural Marxism happening at the same time in America today. But that was the second thing, right? So we distort the narrative, we control the language, or the left does, and then we enact Marxism. We start dividing the population to divide and conquer. And what do you know? Third thing is to manufacture or ride the tail of a crisis to use fear that will then normalize their radical ideas in the minds of people who would usually never embrace those ideas in a normal society, in a normal state of mind. So what do you know? March 2020 is happening. I'm at CPAC. The next week, we had no idea that this was going to happen, but the, the country shuts down, the world shuts down, but I'm just walking around a convention hall <laughs> at, at CPAC in Washington, D.C., and I don't, I, I should try and find this footage, but I did an OAN interview and everybody was saying stupid stuff back then, you know, like we didn't know what was actually happening. And China at the time was saying that COVID-19, because they're, you know, a communist regime that lies and suppresses the truth. They knew it spread from person to person, but they lied to us about that and said it didn't. And so all of us in America, everybody worldwide, we're thinking, oh, okay, this isn't really a big deal. And multiple politicians had said that even Nancy Pelosi herself was going to Chinatown and saying, stop being racist against Chinese people show up to Chinatown. Everybody come on down. Stop hating Asian people. Um, side note, just because we're calling out the Chinese communist regime doesn't mean that we hate Chinese people. In fact, most of the Chinese people in America today 
were oppressed by the Chinese Communist Party of then, back then, and of today. Because guess what? It's the same CCP. Okay, nothing's changed. It's literally the same regime. Um, sorry, I could really rant about this forever. But I'm at CPAC, and I do an OAN interview, and it's one of those things where, like, they were like, we want it to look cool and on the ground. So if you could stand in the front of the hallway and have all of the people behind you, it'll like show that you're, you know, grassroots and at the convention. And so the TV camera is in front of me. All of the conference is behind me. And I'm getting asked about, you know, what is it looking like there, Morgan? Is there any threat of COVID there? What are you seeing? Are people scared? <laughs> And I say something super positive. I'm like, nope, no COVID here. Nothing to worry about here. We're just living our lives. We ain't listening to this BS. I just am going on in this like positive thing. And again, that's because at the time we were all falling for the lies of a communist regime that was lying about this disease being spread from person to person. Yikes. Wow. It's crazy when you look back at all of that happening. But <laughs> uh, so I'm at CPAC. And I'm specifically talking about these three talking points. And as I go home, as I'm told, okay, we're going to lock down. And I hear this 15 days to slow the spread thing. I said, holy moly. And a pit formed in my stomach and it hasn't left since because I knew history is very clear about this. When a massive crisis like this happens, a pandemic worldwide sickness that shuts down entire nations, what do you think is going to happen? So by March 2020, end of March 2020, we see, what's his name? Kami Bill de Blasio. Now I'm going to have to go into this too. Oh my goodness. I'm sorry, but you need the full context, you guys. When we look at numbers like 70% of young Americans would vote for a socialist, do we really think 70% of young people in America understand what it means to seize the means of production? And not only that, but do we think they've ever even heard the term seizing the means of production before or nationalizing an industry before? Absolutely not. No, 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 no. And so that was the joke that I used to always make with crowds. And it would kind of lighten the mood because it's like, listen, guys, we're not fighting against a, a generation of 70% of people that think we're going to retry the USSR and it's going to work this time. Instead, we have a small group of radical leftists that do want to nationalize industry, do want to seize the means of production, do want to take ownership and put that in the hands of the government. And then, of course, they're going to say it's in the name of the people. But ownership is fully controlled by the government under socialism. And it's just a play on words to say it's in the name of the people. Uh, that's a small group. The bigger group that we have to deal with are these honestly very ignorant and unaware and misguided and naive young Americans that didn't get the proper education at home, didn't get the proper education on history, economics, government, civics, any of this stuff in the American classroom. And now they are in schools, they are entering the workforce, they're entering adult life, and they're completely oblivious to what's going on. And so they're falling for the lies of the radical left that wants to seize the means of production. So that used to be my talking point. That used to be a big part of my speech because I would say, guys, of course we need to attack these crazy lefties, the flat earthers of economics that think we're going to try the 20th century's failures all over again and make it work this time. But when it comes to my generation, we have to make sure they understand what they want, which is basically like a Nordic European style of government. They want larger government programs. They want more taxes. At the end of the day, that's still on a foundation of classical liberalism and capitalism. And we have to make sure that they understand these concepts. So I would talk to them about that and how we can message to these two different groups in a, an important way. We can deepen the understanding of my generation so that we stop rejecting the great American values that have gotten us to this place of true progress, not leftist progress, which is actually regress. Uh, 
That being said, let's put ourselves end of March 2020. Little Miss Morgan Zeggers, who has my clear talking points, I say the same thing to every crowd because I'm super confident in it. I'm watching the news and I'm pretty pissed at this point because I'm stuck in my house and this all my speeches are canceled at this point and I'm starting to think this is not going to go over well. I think we're going to have more than two weeks and I'm with my mom and we see on the television Bill de Blasio saying this is a case for nationalization of industry in America. Holy moly. You guys, it was the first time I have ever heard an American politician say nationalize, nationalization, seize the means of production, that kind of communication and that kind of rhetoric on national television. I mean, the mayor of New York City, a national figure, truly. So much power. The economy of New York City is just massive. And he's on national TV saying the words nationalize industry. That was a huge, huge step for the radical left. But as soon as I heard that, I said, that sucker, that guy, I knew this was going to happen. They were going to start normalizing their crazy ideas that normally we would never embrace. And what do you know? It's exactly what happened. What happened next? A couple weeks later, we're in April 2020. Guess what happened? Do you guys remember? AOC and Ilhan Omar and the rest of the squad, they started coming out with talking points that said stuff along the lines of, Huh, if we had Medicare for all, we'd be saving lives right now. Huh, if we had already had Medicare for all in place, we wouldn't be facing these, these you know, shortages in hospital beds and all of these problems that we're going through right now because of the pandemic. If only we had Medicare for all, we'd be in a better place to fight the pandemic and we'd be saving lives. Womp womp. And so at first I was, I was pretty annoyed, but then I said, you know, I'll, I'll give them that because this is a health problem and they're bringing up their own talking points and policy positions about a health problem. I see it. I respect it. You know, okay. Okay. I'll give them, I'll give them some room, but oh no, it didn't end there. Remember what I said? The radical left will use moments of crisis to normalize their radical policies that would usually never be embraced. So what came next? Then we started hearing from the the left, the squad and AOC, that if we canceled student loan debt, we'd be in a better place to fight the pandemic. If we actually had free college for all, we'd be in a better place to fight the pandemic. (laughs) And what happened next? If we canceled rent, if we had an eviction moratorium, we'd be in a better place to fight this pandemic. If we had national rent control, We'd be in a better place to fight the pandemic. And it just went on and on and on. And uh, it was like a tale as old as time. They just followed the book of how it's done. And I'm not surprised. So that was all first couple months of the pandemic. It's now what? September 2021. And we have people DMing me on Instagram saying, but Morgan, maybe I should just comply with these new rules, because then I, I don't have my job anymore. And that's what I want to talk about now. When do we hold the line? When do we even draw the line first and then hold it? Where do we just stand up in this fight and say, I'm going to start having some dignity. This is never going to end until I stop it myself. A lot of people say, our founders would never have put up with this. Our founders were pretty bad ASS. Imagine men 
coming together and saying, I know I'm pretty much going to get killed for this, for even signing this document declaring independence, but I'm going to put my name down. Imagine being controlled by another country and secretly meeting and saying, what if we waged war and fought for our independence as our own country? And then when we have all this land and all these people that we have to then take care of, what if we tried to literally make a free government controlled by the people and not authority or force? What if we like literally tried that? Put yourself in that mindset. Can you imagine making a decision like that and then what we're in america today and we're being told we're going to be fired unless we inject something into our bodies without consent and we're saying but then i will lose my job then i will lose my job morgan what are we gonna do you guys i think we need to rethink how society works how government works and how our lives work are our lives our jobs no Do we need to put food on the table to feed our families? Yes. And so are absolutes going to work for us? No, because I can't expect everybody to just quit their job. I can't expect everybody to do that. Nobody can because there's mouths to feed and there's children that need to have roofs over their heads. And I totally understand that. And so what that takes is us looking at the solutions for us to come together and instead of being alone in this and saying, if I quit, I'm going to be alone and then I have all these bills to pay and then I'm not going to have a job or anything, we need to start networking. Business owners, there are tons of jobs out there, openings. There are more people that are trying to hire for jobs. There are more open jobs than there are people looking for jobs. Imagine if we started creating a network of people that said, I'm looking to hire conservatives that believe in freedom. I'm not going to discriminate. Of course, I'd hire a liberal. But I have job openings, and I will hire you if you do not want to get the jab. That's just one solution. It's that kind of communication. Maybe we should start thinking about that. This is getting pretty ridiculous, and so we're going to get into it now. But the thing is, is the answer is not clear. It's not telling people to just quit their jobs and that, oh, you'll figure it out. It's encouraging people to stand up for themselves, work together to convince their boss to not require these things. It's supporting employers as they make that legal battle. It's supporting organizations and politicians that are going to stand up against this. It's deepening the understanding of our founding documents so that people understand that this truly isn't constitutional and they don't deserve to be told what to do in this way. And it's rethinking government involvement in our lives moving forward at a larger larger scale and so there's a bunch of little aspects of it and that's what we're going to break down um (laughs) i just really can't believe this so let's get into the solutions here uh we have joe biden (laughs) now telling businesses that they need to require vaccinations basically for their employees and it's going to affect as many as 100 million people um according to this and let me just read the fox news article president joe biden is announcing thursday that all employers with more than 100 workers will be forced to require coronavirus vaccinations or test employees weekly the mandate will be announced blah 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 it was announced today The expansive rules mandate that all employers with more than 100 workers require them to be vaccinated or test for the virus weekly, affecting about 80 million Americans and the roughly 17 million workers at health facilities that receive federal Medicare or Medicaid 
also will have to be fully vaccinated. Basically, what's going on here is you, you probably wonder, how can he do this? It's the bureaucracy, okay? And so OSHA, I can never pronounce this right. OSHA? Asha? I say Asha. I'm the worst with pronunciations. Biden will have OSHA make a rule requiring employees of companies to be tested. Do you see what he's doing there? He's making a bureaucratic rule because he can't find the constitutionality in requiring a sort of executive order that would just say, I, the president, am requiring everybody out there to be vaccinated. And so instead he's like, well, we have enough unvaccinated people in the workforce. What if we made a workforce requirement that people had to be vaccinated with a certain thing? Then they can't exactly say that I'm forcing them. So companies will have to pay for the testing if their employees are not vaccinated or they can pass the cost on to employees. What do you think is going to happen? Biden is also signing an executive order to require vaccination for employees of the executive branch and contractors who do business with the federal government with no option to test. Instead, that covers several million more workers. So there's no option for testing if you are an employee of the executive branch or a contractor who does business with the federal government. In addition to the vaccination requirements, Biden is moving to double federal fines for airline passengers who refuse to wear masks on flights or maintain face coverings on requirements, face, face covering requirements on federal property in accordance with the CDC. Doubling the fines. I've never seen anybody actually fined on airplanes. I wonder if they've actually, have they done that? We've got to look that up. Uh, the rule would also require large companies provide paid time off for vaccination. This is what I never understand why they do this with elections as well. They're like, we need to make sure that it's a, a paid time off thing for people to be allowed to go leave work for the polls. That's not going to change much. I'm sorry. I'm, it's not going to change much. But it's these things that look good on paper and it makes them feel good. You know, they're kind of leftist lunatic progress. Um Let's see. According to Forbes, businesses that refuse to comply with the mandate will open themselves up to hefty fines, nearly $14,000 per violation. And in July, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki told reporters that a federal vaccine mandate was not the role of the federal government. Womp, womp. So, okay. So that's that. My DMs, this is why I came on to do this. My DMs are freaking full of business owners and employees saying, I can't afford the fines. I'm a business owner and I can't afford the fines. And then the employee is saying, I need to put food on the table. What am I supposed to do? I completely understand the struggle. Okay, I get it. It's not an easy answer. I'm not going to tell you right now, quit your job. Okay, don't comply. Quit your job. It's, it's not going to work. So we need to make an action plan. We need to get a little bit more coordinated. And I'm not going to have all the answers for you, but I'm at least going to try and get you guided in the right way so that you can start these little activism hubs in your places of employment and in your communities. Here we go. So there's two ways that both need to happen. One is massive noncompliance, massive amounts of it, massive amounts of noncompliance around the country. Do not comply. And the only way we can really make this happen is if it's with numbers. There's power in numbers. The second thing that we can do is coordination and action at the state, local, and community level. So we'll look at two pathways. Okay. And I should preface this with saying that like, 
you guys, there's going to be a lot that comes from this. You know, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it does bend towards justice. But this is really a fight for the long run. And it starts here with these small little steps. So this is just basic 101 of what you can probably do in your own life to get started. And check back in with me. Feel free to message me. I'm going to try and answer everybody um, if you're going through individual problems. But really, like, take on the mantle. Don't wait for someone else to do it because nobody else is probably doing it. That's what I've learned for most of this. Like I always think, oh, maybe somebody probably already has that idea. Somebody's probably already doing it. Nope. For the most part, unless you act on it, nobody else is going to do it. And so this is one of those situations where I need you guys to step it up in your own lives and figure out how can I become more of a leader. So solutions in terms of mass non-compliance and coordination between groups, between people, uh, community leadership and community involvement. Let's talk first about employers. So employers, you probably have a legal fight in this that you can band together. You have a little bit more power to flex in the legal aspect because you're the one that's going to have that fine placed on you for requiring something very invasive of your employees. There's going to be groups out there that will probably be able to coordinate this and actually help with the legal battle or even wage the legal battle and then you'll just be a part of it. I don't know the groups yet. Let me just look into it and I will check back with you, but start doing your own research on this of how you can join in because again, there's power in numbers. So not only that, start looking for those legal groups, but also coordinate groups on a community and local level and then start reaching out to the towns over. So, I mean, if you just think of the chamber of commerce and all of these local community groups, you need to start coordinating with the local businesses so that we aren't doing this alone. We cannot fight this alone as if it's just one business owner against the entire government. We need to start coordinating and making it very clear that there are X number dozens of business owners in this town that are saying we refuse to do so. When you times that by how many towns are in a county and how many of those towns are in a state, and then you send that kind of information to representatives and to people with power, it really does make a big difference. And so understanding how many people are truly going to push back on this, I think is going to have them shaking in their boots. So coordinate on a local level, whether that's meeting after hours and all of you guys just coordinating and making sure that you have the numbers in order and the relationships of who can do what, uh, that's going to be a great first step. Again, power and numbers. So business owners need to band together and also communicate to your employees the fact that you are not going to require this from them and that you are going to be stepping up because you being a leader in that sense, you being a thought leader is going to give them the courage and the confidence and honestly, this, this sense of security that they need because everybody's a little freaked out right now. This is all about us just being able to continue our lives and put food on our table to provide for our families. Next up, employees. There's really two avenues for you here. So one, if your employer is going to try and make you get the vaccine or maybe you get fired or maybe they're going to try and fine you for not taking the vaccine, there is a link and I'm going to try and find it here. Um, I'll put it in the bio, but there's a link that I know of from an organization that has PDF files you can download for multiple different employee situations, whether you're a student, whether you're in the military, whether you're just a private employee. The paperwork that you need to download and fill out and provide to your employer to say that I am claiming religious exemption. I'm hearing I'm hearing right now that people who have submitted this to their employers sometimes are told, okay, then we're going to put you on unpaid leave for a certain amount of time, which is basically like 
not allowing someone to work. If that happens, reach out to me and we'll work around it. I'll keep you updated on uh, if I hear any other solutions on how to get through this one. But that's going to be if your employer doesn't require it. Not only do you need to be providing them that religious exemption via the PDF, and I will link it. It's linked on my social media as well. You need to be working with the employees to let them know that this is unconstitutional and that when this is tested by the courts, by the American justice system, judicial system, it will be hit. It will not last. And so what they're doing right now, these fines and this attack on our employment, it is not constitutional. And like I said, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. That's the hard thing about being in America. Nothing crazy can really happen to us. It can happen for the short term because some people have that power to be able to do something that's wrong. Our system will eventually check them. They will be checked and held accountable and stopped, but it's going to be a long time. And that's what's so beautiful and frustrating about our system. That's what's happening right now. A good example, Ron DeSantis. I mean, after people were fined in Florida and, you know, given like these weird um, charges for not wearing masks or not social distancing or keeping their businesses open during the initial stage of the, uh, stages of the pandemic, he went back and he said, this is insane. I can't believe this even happened. I'm dropping all charges and fines against anybody who had, you know, violations of COVID mandates and, and restrictions. And that's the kind of leadership we need, but I'll get to that in a second. So, what we need to be doing here is understanding that this battle is long-term. People that are scared right now of like, oh, the fine, even business owners, you're scared of the fine or you're scared you're going to get fired. You are righteous and you are on the side of the Constitution right now. So stand firm in that and know that these people are tyrants and authoritarians and this system of our government will check them eventually. So they need to have that confidence and understanding in the legal system here that this is not going to be allowed long-term in America. And if we step up, we can actually change it. So coordinate with the employees to make it clear that there are X number of employees here who will not comply with this and put, you know, Put yourself out there, have some dignity and say, this is how many people you're going to be losing if this goes through. And if you comply, don't be aggressive because I honestly think the best way to win them over is to say, we will have your back. Tell your employer, we will have your back if you choose to stand up against this, because long term, this is not going to be proven uh, constitutional. So we will have your back in this long fight that will help us in the end achieve justice. The second thing that could happen, I mean, some employers might Tell their employees, I'm not going to require this. What you need to do then is band together and say, okay, then what are we going to do to help this? Just because you aren't going to lose your job doesn't mean that your friends, your family, and all the other great American citizens out there that just want to provide for their families aren't going to have to go through this. And so if you're one of those privileged people that doesn't have to deal with this, maybe you have a great boss, maybe you're somebody like me, I work for myself, it's amazing, and I'm very blessed for that. But we need to still stand up for these people and help them out. And so get involved work with your employer and start to build that network of businesses that refuse to do this and tell your employer that you are there to help them out. Again, I know you guys are like, eh, I don't like politics. I don't like to do this stuff. I'm sorry. You may not do politics, but politics does you. We need to start activating. Let's go. Next up donors. I know a lot of donors and I'm very thankful for my donors. That being said, not everybody can just donate to Morgan's little anti-communist organization all the time. I get that there is a lot of money to go around out there, and it can't all go to my C3, okay? We're working really hard, but we also have a very small budget because we rock it, okay? Like, we, we accomplish so much on a very small amount. 
That being said, I know there's a lot of money to go around for really, truly worthy causes like this. There are so many good causes. Right now, I need you guys, donors, to be allocating your money to two different things. Organizations, legal organizations that are going to provide legal financial support and legal guidance and actual like legal case support for businesses that are going to be going through this and employees that are going to be going through this to fight this in the courts, because that's what we need right now. So allocate your money there. Second, allocate your money to politicians and to actual you know, future potential candidates that are going to do what Ron DeSantis did, which is stand up against these crazy COVID mandates the way that DeSantis always does. But like I mentioned earlier, he went back and he said, I am not allowing these people to be fined or charged with anything for obstructing or, you know, breaking these COVID rules. And so if a politician or a candidate tries to get your money and tries to get your support, this goes for voters too. If they try and get your support or money and they do not agree and promise to remove any fines and remove any charges from people that are charged with violating COVID mandates, whether that's, you know, not getting the jab or social distancing or masking or anything, then do not take them seriously. And they do not deserve a position of power. If they want to, you know, if they're governor right now and they want to run for president, I hope all the big donors out there are telling people who have these bigger ambitions, I'm not supporting you unless you put your foot down right now and stand up for what's right. That's the message that needs to come from the donors and the voters. Next up, everybody, <laughs> this, is, this is a more simple one. Time to rethink the role of government, the structure of our society, and your dependence on the current system that we have. Okay? Life, society, community, government, none of this has to be this way. We don't have to consent to the current times just because it's what we were born into. We can change it. Okay? So for me... I immediately, I love education. I love babies and kids and all the things. And and I love teaching and I love history and I'm a nerd about all of it. And so for me, I have a deep passion for education. And I think government schools are indoctrination hubs. It's not public school, it's government school. And we will never, ever be able to trust the government and send our kids to government schools to be taught properly about history, economics, policy, civics, any of that stuff. How stupid were we for the last few decades to have thought that we could have done that? Absolutely not. And it's really led to such a demise of our country. So that's one of those things. Rethinking education. For me, I'm homeschooling my kids. I I say that all the time. I'm going to homeschool my kids. I can't wait to do that. Honestly, I'm just really, I get all excited about it. But other options are out there, okay? So And I've talked about this before in other episodes. I'm going to homeschool my kids, but I understand not everybody can do that. Okay, so there are also homeschool hubs. You can try and get your kid into one of those group circles where there's like a teacher that is hired by parents. Uh, A few of them pay in. And honestly, when a few parents pay in a small amount, the teachers literally paid more than they were for public school. So it's pretty funny that that's all it takes because public school teachers are paid so little. So it actually ends up being beneficial to everybody. There are private schools out there that you can trust that are more affordable. There are um, opportunities for financial assistance in that case. But most importantly, school choice is very needed. And what we see at a legislative level is the radical left trying to make it as difficult as possible to get your kid out of public school by fighting against school choice, by fighting against homeschooling and uh, all of the other 
alternative schooling options out there. So there's a reason they're fighting against that. It's because it cuts the teachers union's power, uh, really chops it at the knees. And, uh, it also takes your kid out of the government indoctrination hubs. So I personally encourage you to rethink education, but here's the thing. If you can't get your kid out of public school, that's fine. I went to public school, but I want you to challenge yourself to dedicate time and say, if I have 24 hours in a day, Perhaps I should be allocating an hour or two to discussions with my child about core situations and topics and subjects that I don't trust the government to teach them. That can be a great solution. A lot of people say, Morgan, I can't get my kids out of public school. I need to send them there. I go to work. I I can't afford private school. I can't homeschool. I can't do it. I don't have the power to do it. That's okay. But when it comes to history, when it comes to politics, when it comes to American culture, I really, really hope that everybody out there especially if your kid's in public school, dedicates a couple hours every day to just talking with your child about what's going on and about the core values that make up America and what's going on around the world versus what goes on in the land of the free. So that's one solution for you. On top of that, when we talk about rethinking education, we can also rethink community involvement and leadership. And that's what we're going to start seeing with the rise of organizations, businesses, and employees working together to coordinate and say, we're going to reject these COVID mandates. So that's that. Um, like I said, there is the religious exemption. So I'm going to include the link. If you can't find it, go to my social media and I have it linked on my Instagram to get the religious exemption PDF. Next up though, you guys, next up, we're going to be talking about what can you do other than coordinating at a local and state level? And that is actual, actually looking at the government and the system that we have here, which is quite beautiful. Uh, we have a federalist system for a reason, and I have a an exciting project coming up um, that's really focusing on the federalist papers. And I talked about it, I think, in a, a previous episode, but for those of you guys who don't know, when we needed to ratify the U.S. Constitution back in the 1780s after the Revolutionary War, a couple of the states were against ratification of the Constitution. And so... so Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, James Madison, they got together and they wrote 85 essays in favor of ratifying the U.S. Constitution, uh, and they released each paper in the New York City newspapers to try and convince the people of New York State to vote in favor of ratification. And they said they did it because they believed that the people had the ability to educate themselves, to want to learn, and to read these papers and then fully get an understanding of what they were going to be uh, consenting to by ratifying the Constitution. And not only that, but they would be excited to do so because they would have this reverence and admiration and love for the document by the time they were done with the papers. So that's what I have right here. Each paper basically goes through a concern or a problem that they were either facing at the time with the monarchy that they had just been in, with the Articles of Confederation, which was the first attempt at American government, which was not exactly doing very well, and with just what was in the Constitution itself that seemed a little concerning. One of these big aspects was balance of power, separation of power, and providing a check. So to get started, I just want to let you know, in Federalist Paper Number 1, just this beautiful sentence right here, Alexander Hamilton wrote Federalist Paper Number 1, but they all wrote the essays together or separately, and they put them all under one pen name called Publius. Because 
if they were all written, all 85 were written by Publius, it would, it wouldn't be like, oh, Hamilton said, we've got to do this. And I kind of like Hamilton, but I don't really like him. And I have these problems with him. It wasn't like, oh, my, this politician's telling me what to do. They designed Publius to be this guiding figure that had the nation's best interest at heart, that had the people's best interest at heart and truly wanted them to understand. And so it was very smart, um, what they did there by signing off with Publius. So uh, Publius in number one says, I am clearly of opinion it is your interest to adopt it, the Constitution. I am convinced that this is the safest course for your liberty, your dignity, and your happiness. Mm. Like, I don't know, maybe that's a little nerdy, you guys, but when I hear that stuff, I'm just like, yes, your liberty, your dignity, and your happiness. And if you think about it, our dignity is what is truly Something that goes overlooked. Our liberty, our freedom is under attack, of course. Our happiness is under attack. We can't even live our basic lives and provide for ourselves. We don't have the pursuit of happiness right now and we can't even go to work unless we listen to what the government says. But truly our dignity, because it's it's like we're being poked with a stick. How long can we get poked by this stick until we start to stand up for ourselves? How much of our lives are we willing to give up before we just finally say stop? You know, I'm going to live my life with dignity. I'd rather die on my feet and stand on my knees. And I'm not saying that in an aggressive way, just figuratively. Um, but that even goes for the community involvement. The, the first section of solutions that I provided you guys, employees, employers, parents, students that are worried about what's going on. Think about your dignity. Ask yourself, is this specific job exactly what I need to be doing in life? Or is there a greater purpose for me? And is that greater purpose going to be found after I stand up to these tyrants and and chart my own path in life instead of continuing to comply? Because guess what? It's September 2021. How much worse do you think it's going to get? I laughed so hard at all the people that were like, <laughs> they were like, oh my God, it's, it's New Year's Eve 2020. I'm so glad 2020 is over. <laughs> like, hello, it's, it's just going to get worse. Welcome to 2021. The year is going to be worse than 2020. What do you know? I'm sorry, but that was a pretty obvious one. And I just thought it was funny to see those memes. Everybody's excited about 2020 ending. I'm sorry. It just doesn't end on December 31st. It only continues to get worse. So when we talk about our dignity, we need to fight back on it. But like I said, this was in Federalist paper number one. In the Federalist Papers, it is so incredibly important to have this balance of power. And and what they argued for is that we need to have a centralized form of government in the essence of a very tiny, tiny, small federal government in Washington, D.C. But the states were really where the money's at, the power's at. It's where the people's power is because that's where they can be more individual and more free. They can be testing grounds for certain policy. They can be unique. Not states. No state is going to be the same as, as another one. They have different markets, different economies, different products to sell, different factions. That's a whole other lesson of the book. But getting these states to cooperate and work together was the goal of forming a union. The goal of forming a union wasn't to create this massive bureaucratic hub of authoritarianism that we have in Washington, D.C. right now. And I just did an interview with um, Congressman Andy Andy Biggs from Arizona. He's the chairman of the House Freedom Caucus, and that's with my upcoming project that I have. But he was telling me, Morgan, 
it was called a federal government because that's that's what the goal was. It was supposed to be the states in a federation together and then a small federal formation that would keep them all coordinating together, keep factions from fighting against each other. And instead of fighting against each other and having adversities, we would be encouraged to cooperate and work together to benefit everybody. But he said, it's no longer a federal government, it's a national government because they are not complying with the intentions of the Constitution. And we saw that was something where Joe Biden ignored the Supreme Court about the eviction moratorium. Joe Biden is now ignoring the Supreme Court about the abortion ban in Texas. We're seeing these massive obstructions of, of something that we've always kind of put our faith in. And it's really fascinating to see, but also unprecedented. So I don't really have much to say as we watch it all roll out. Um, but back to the whole purpose of this is President Biden today, when he announced this completely authoritarian concept of making people get fired if they don't get the vaccine. He said, if they'll not help, if these governors won't help us beat the pandemic, I'll use my powers as president to get them out of the way. (laughs) Somebody needs to tell Joe Biden that he doesn't actually have the powers to get the governors of those states out of the way. That's the intention of the American Constitution. The executive branch of the federal government does not have the power to tell governors of states to get out of the way as he mandates unconstitutional measures. The solution here. Again, I'm going to go back to the quote, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. The fight here is going to be to prove and stop a man who's acting unconstitutionally by using the measures of the Constitution and of the government. And we've got to be a little bit patient, but we have to start making the framework for this. What's required is for the states to start pushing back against the federal government on this. If you're in a blue state, this is going to be harder. And this is where it comes into what states do you really want to be living in right now? This isn't just about, uh, you know, California's expensive, New York state's expensive to live in. This is a matter of, do I want to live in a blue state? Who cares how expensive it is? If the leaders are not going to protect me from tyranny at the federal level, that's the intention of the Federalist Papers. That's the intention of the constitution. Don't think about blue state versus red state as, oh, it's expensive. Ugh, Cuomo sucks. Because that's, you know, I lived in upstate New York growing up. This is a question of do I want this leader to be representing me when it comes down to me needing state-level leadership to protect me from a tyrant at the federal level. That's what this is. State power is going to be the fight leading in, but not only that, local level. Local leaders have just as much power in many ways to protect the businesses there, to stand up against the higher levels of government. And that's going to be very important. So somebody needs to make it very clear, and somebody will, many, many people will make it very clear to Joe Biden soon, that that's just not how it works. That's just not how it works, folks, as he would say. (laughs) So I guess I'll wrap it up now, you guys. When we are going back and forth on, you know, this seems insane. Everybody's just yelling behind a microphone. I don't exactly know what to do. I'm going to lose my job. I need to feed my kids. I I can't pay the fines. All of these questions. This is just going to continue year after year after year until we stand up and now's the time to stand up. 
There, this cannot happen anymore. Massive levels of noncompliance are needed to fight back and state level action is also needed. Local level action is also needed. And so please consider all the things that I have said. Okay. So I want to close this off with a little, a little lesson. I, I would be remiss to not include this, you guys. Um, when we talk about uh, socialism never worked before, meh, which is usually the reaction from conservatives when they hear young people in favor of leftism or socialism, right? We hear a lefty say they want socialism. We hear a young person that has no idea what it is say, oh yeah, I'm a socialist. And we go, you idiots, socialism's never worked before. Go try out Venezuela and I'll buy you a plane ticket to go experience it. <laughs> so we have our like basic talking points, right? What do they actually do? And so I think it's really important to understand why socialism doesn't work. And we have to explain it to people of why socialism has never worked before. This is a really great example. Socialism is really about control and the removal of choice. And what happens when you remove choice is you basically have to force people or you are forced into doing certain things. And so what we're seeing right here, the government in America is saying we are going to say that you cannot be employed and they aren't doing it directly. They're saying they're going to find employers and they're going to you know, allow testing, but then employees have to pay for testing and all these things, right? It's very bureaucratic. But basically what they're saying is you're not going to be able to put food on your table and go to your employer to perform services and get paid for them unless you do X, Y, Z. Well, we look at that situation and then it's pretty serious. We need to put food on the table. We need to be employed. We need to provide for our family. We don't want our child to starve. We need to pay for our mortgage. We need to pay for our car bill. We look at all this and we say, well, I have no other option. I am truly going to have to be forced into uh, getting the vaccination. That's the decision there. Be unemployed. Take the vaccine. The government is making it very clear. It's one or the other. People are worried. When you have socialism and government becomes the only employer because they become the only you know, people that are able to control industry, they start controlling these industries and these, these corporations and private businesses. And in Venezuela, you have situations of people being like, eh, Venezuela is X percent private still. No. Okay. So any of these private companies that we hear about in actual socialist countries aren't actually private companies, same thing with China. The government actors are just on the boards or controlling the companies and running them as private companies so they can compete in the markets. Uh, it's a scam. And so it's fully controlled by the government though. When government is the only person that can hire you, give you your paycheck, not only that, when government's the only person that can give you your pension and your retirement, or when government, like in Venezuela, is the only the only provider of food. And not only that, they tell you what hour you can show up at the grocery store to pick up that food. In Cuba, if you walk out into the ocean, I've heard multiple testimonies from people who have lived there over the last few decades. If you walk out into the ocean and pick up a lobster and bring it back to your home to eat it because everybody's starving there, what happens to you? You get thrown in political prison because you just stole from the government. Those lobsters are only for the restaurants that serve the tourists. When the government's the only provider of food, pension, pay, what about health care? When the government is the only provider of health care, yikes. And the list goes on and on. What about education, higher education? That's another great one that we hear from lefties in America all the time. Oh, 
Wouldn't it be great if government provided it for us? When they seize the means of production and become the only provider of these things, it makes it immediately easy for them to say, okay, now if you continue to want these services, and if you want to have them given to you, then you must do X, Y, Z. It's that simple. If you want X, then you must do Y. There's a really interesting story that in Venezuela, the HR offices, they aren't there to, you know, monitor sexual harassment cases and workplace harassment and make sure that everybody's getting along in the office, all that good stuff. They don't hire people. The HR offices in Venezuela and the companies and the government offices, they're there to monitor the people. They see, was this person wearing enough red in support of the Communist Party this week? Does this person have a picture of Che Guevara in their office? And if not, why not? How dare you? How come you weren't at the last protest last weekend? in favor of the socialist regime. Why weren't you present? I'm going to have to mark that down and report back on that one. When they start doing these things, you have to do whatever they expect from you in order to receive the services. And unfortunately, the services the government is providing are, are really necessary to continue to live. Food, health care, shelter, retirement, pay. That's why socialism doesn't work. It's because it leads to this massive issue of authority over the people. It removes all aspects of choice, and it basically forces people into doing whatever the government wants them to do in exchange for the basic, basic aspects that keep a life going. So that's what happens when you give government control like this and when they're able to hold things over your head. That's what's happening right now with them saying your employment is now going to be held over your head unless you agree to get this vaccination. So that's why socialism doesn't work um, because it's truly, it just takes away the dignity and the freedom of the people. And, and people deserve more than that, not just in America, but worldwide people deserve more than that. And so that's why, you know, I, I may sound a little harsh when I call people flat earthers of economics. I may sound a little aggressive when I say, fine, if a communist wants to tell me to F off good, I don't give a crap. I may sound a little aggressive with it, but it's because their ideas aren't just dumb. They're dangerous. And I don't have time for dangerous ideas. Not only that, I don't have time for it, but I also want to smush them like a bug in America and, and get them out of our society immediately. Those ideas just, it's not that I want to force them out. It's that I want to beat them in the intellectual arguments and make sure that they don't live on in America. So that's what we're working on. Um, and I'll keep working on it. But I appreciate you guys. I hope this helped you a little bit understand the fight that we're up against. Again, Community involvement and organization in your office spaces, in your community, in your state, and then also state level and local level government intervention to fight back against the tyranny at the federal level. Uh, I'll see you guys later. Stay tuned for next week's episode. Maybe I'll do a Q&A if you have any questions, send them in. And God bless. Love you guys so much. Bye.
Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.